0: For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height or depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance on our study. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word down through the centuries. Not only have you revealed yourself to us, but you have overseen the uh, preservation and the perpetuation of your revelation so that you have made sure that that which you reveal to us has been preserved and passed down faithfully through the centuries without change and without error. And, Father, we pray that as we study these things about your word today, that you would give us a a thorough understanding and confidence in your word, that we know that we can trust it, that we have the words that you have revealed to us, and that by a study of your word, then, you are able to uh, teach us and instruct us, and God the Holy Spirit uses that to uh, bring us to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Several weeks ago, we began sort of a sub-series within our study of kings to address the question that's really been raised in 2 Kings chapter 18. This is a question that's raised by uh, the Shaka, who was the uh, sort of the commander-in-chief of the Assyrian army outside the walls of Jerusalem, and it's a challenge that he addressed to Hezekiah and to the people of Jerusalem. And the challenge was, can you really trust in this God of yours to deliver you? None of the gods of any other nations uh, were able to deliver them. So you, can you really trust in your God? Can you really trust in his promises? And this is the same basic, the same basic challenge that uh, Satan originally addressed to Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. The question being, did God really say this? Does he really mean that? Does he really have your best interests in mind? Can you really, truly trust and depend on God's word? Do you even have it? And and as time has gone on down through the centuries, some of the questions or some of the uh, permutations on that question have become a a little more sophisticated, a little more detailed, but they all boil down to the same thing, and that is, uh, you can't, this, this book's just another old book. It's just a, it, it's just another uh, religious book like all of the other books. And so you, you can't really trust it. There There's errors in it. You'll hear people who have uh, multiple degrees after their name who will make all kinds of very uh, pious sounding statements about how all of the wonderful things that you can find in the Bible. But after all, it's just another book written by uh, human beings, and it is uh, filled with errors and contradictions and things of that nature. And yet the question is, where's the evidence, because there is a vast amount of evidence to support the veracity of the Word of God. And with each archaeological discovery that comes along, uh, with various historical discoveries and other things, we see nothing but the confirmation of what the Bible says, and we don't find anything that, uh, that takes away from the truthfulness of the Bible. And what I pointed out in the previous two lessons is that even within the word of God itself, God recognizes that people will ask this question, how do we know this is the word of God? In fact, God states that to the uh, Israelites in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy that they should ask that question because there are many people who will come along and make claims to truth and make claims to uh, say what the Bible uh, uh, claims to, to teach and, and trying to make various, uh, various alternate claims and saying this is what the Bible really says or this is what Christianity says. And you always have to go back and validate it in terms of what has been revealed and what has been said in the Word. And that's done basically through interpretation. So you have a couple of different issues here. One is the issue of the veracity of the text itself. And one is, uh, clear interpretation. And in Deuteronomy, as I've pointed out in the past, there are these two tests that come along, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. The first test is a test of consistency. Does the, what, When someone claims, thus saith the Lord, is that consistent with that which has already been accepted as divine revelation and as absolute truth? And then when somebody comes along and claims to foretell the future, claims to be a prophet, and in that process they uh, they foretell the future, that they must be 100% accurate, that they're, if they're just 99% accurate, then they are a false prophet because the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who created all things. He is an omniscient God who not only knows everything that will take place. He knows everything that could take place. He knows all of the various options, all the various permutations, uh, various things that would happen if something else had taken place. And so we can go to such a God and he can tell the future. He knows exactly what is going to take place and what will take place. And so he doesn't make Mistakes. He doesn't say this will happen and then oops, didn't quite happen that way. And so we looked at evidences in archaeology, evidences in history, evidences in prophecy the last couple of weeks that uh, validate the scriptures as being uniquely the Word of God. What I want to do to this Sunday and next Sunday is to look at the, the next question that comes up, or the other subject that comes up with this, and that is, can we really trust the Bible that we have? Can we really trust the uh, Hebrew Old Testament? Can we really trust the Greek New Testament? Uh, how did we get these books? Why these books and not other books? And today, especially with the rise of the... Uh, Uh, New Age movement and various claims made in books like um, the, uh, you know, the secret Gnostic Gospels and the Da Vinci Code and other things of that nature. There have been these claims that there were these other Gospels, such as the Gospel of Thomas or uh, the Gospel of Paul, other books like this that are not, never were accepted as part of the canon, Uh, Why weren't they? What what led to their exclusion? Why do we have these 27 books in the New Testament or these 39 books in the Old Testament as opposed to other books? Did some group just come along and impose that on everybody? And so I've raised some of these questions uh, in the previous classes. Some of these we've addressed. Some we still have left to address. Uh, the first question I asked was, isn't the Bible just another human book subject to error and expressing different opinions about God? And I made it very clear that, no, it is not just another human book. The claims that we find in the scripture are that this is God's word to man mediated through the prophets of the Old Testament and apostles of the New Testament. It's not expressing their opinion, it is rather expressing uh, that which God revealed to them. And so it, there is a uniqueness to the Bible in that you have these um, 66 books of the Old and New Testament that address, that are written over 1,500 years and address every controversial topic uh, known to man, and yet there is 100% agreement. So it's not expressing different opinions about God. Is the Bible full of contradictions and errors no again it's not now there are places that people will go to where at the surface there appear to be some contradictions or differences but with de- detailed study of these passages uh, these con- uh, surface contradictions and errors disappear third question uh, asked was uh, and is often asked is hasn't the Bible changed over the years because it's been copied and translated so many times that's Question will be answered today and next Sunday. Fourth question How can we be sh- sure the Bible we have today is the same as what was originally written? Again, today and next Sunday we'll uh, cover that question. As well as this next question Didn't the rabbis or the church, that is, a, usually the contention is there were a few powerful men who met at some council and they made a decision that we're going to include these books and exclude those books, and that was imposed on the church, that there was just an arbitrary decision. And we'll see that that is not true. That is a complete uh, misrepresentation. Uh, the next question, there's so many different interpretations of the Bible. How can we know which is right? Well, interpretation is a totally different issue than the, the having the accurate text in front of us. It's one thing to, to challenge the accuracy of the text. It's another thing then to answer the question, what does it mean? That's interpretation. The next question, isn't the Bible the product of an evolving religion that originated with the Babylonians and Assyrians? And the answer is no. There's no evolution. There's no change from Genesis to Revelation that the Bible is really an integrated whole. There is development within a framework, but that framework doesn't change, and the uh, ancient religions of the Egyptians, Babylonians and Assyrians is really a a degradation of what was revealed in the Bible. They come after uh, the biblical events and biblical revelation and they show a a degradation and a corruption of biblical truth. It's not that the, the Bible comes from them, but that they show a, they come after the the revelation of scripture and reveal that uh, deterioration. And then doesn't the Bible contain historical and scientific errors? And again, I pointed out through various uh, elements of history or archaeology that that is not, uh, that's not true. We'll cover a few more things related to that as we go along. So the, the question that I continue to ask in terms of this little flow chart is, does God exist? If the answer is no, then we have a very difficult time explaining why anything exists, because matter cannot generate itself. So as uh, just one argument there are many arguments showing that uh, God must exist. Uh, the next question is, God, can God communicate? And we've answered this, yes. If he can't communicate, then he's not God by definition. And if he can communicate, then the next question is, can God communicate clearly? That is, can he Structure his revelation to man in such a way that man can understand, uh, what he has communicated. And this is, uh, this is, the the answer to this again is yes. He can communicate clearly because he created man to be able to understand that which he would communicate to him. And then the last question in this series is the one I'm really addressing this week and next week, and that is, can God protect his communication? Can God protect and preserve it so that what we have today is what he revealed to the original writer so that we can have confidence that we have his revelation? Concluding that if God can communicate clearly and protect his communication, then um, the, his word would have certain characteristics. It's consistent, accurate, It's supported through evidence, it is eternally logical and rational, and it is without error. And therefore, we can trust our lives completely to what the Word of God says. Now, this morning, what I want to address is really the question of canonicity. That may be a new word for some people, and uh, we'll get into a definition of that uh, in just a minute. The question that is usually asked is, "How do we know we have the Word of God? How do we know it's accurate? How do we know we didn't leave some books out? How do we know that there aren't some uh, books out there that we should discover and add uh, to to the Scripture?" And these are the questions that all point to the the fundamental question of authority and truth, and that's really the question that the Rabshakeh is addressing when he challenges Hezekiah. And the people of Judah in Jerusalem, can you really trust this God? It's, does he really have the authority to, to, to say what he says? And can he fulfill what he says uh, he will fulfill? So it always goes back to this issue of authority and truth. Is this book that we have, this, this Bible, these 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament, is this just the word of man or is it? The word of God. So the key word that we'll use here is the word canon. It's not C-A-N-N-O-N. We don't shoot people with the canon of the Bible. It is C-A-N-O-N, which derives from the Hebrew word kaneh and the Greek term kanon. They are etymologically related and that refers to a reed. Remember in the uh, early uh, times of writing they would in, in Egypt they would take the papyrus reed and they would pound them out flat, take many of these reeds, pound them flat and and push and pressure them together and This would f- form an early form of paper, uh, uh, what was called papyrus, which is where we uh, get our word paper and also a reed was used as a measuring device. And this was often just the term used for what we would call a yardstick or, or, or measuring tape or something like that. And so a reed was that which was used to measure something. It was a, a, a standard by which things were measured or evaluated. So the idea of canon came to mean something that was a standard or something that was accepted authority. You will hear the word canon sometimes used in terms of the canon of English literature, meaning the, uh, the books that traditionally were accepted as books that should be taught uh, as part of an English literature curriculum. Most, much of that has somehow been lost or diluted over the last uh, two or three decades. But the idea of the, when we talk about the canon of scripture, we, we are talking about the idea that there are certain books that should be accepted as being uh, authoritative. They have absolute authority and they fit certain criteria. And because they fit that criteria, they have been accepted by uh, believers down through the ages. They were accepted as such by the Israelites in the Old Testament, and they were accepted by uh, the majority of, uh, of Christians in the early church. And the councils basically just recognized what was already a reality, Whether you're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, the councils did not make or set these books as the canon. They simply recognized or affirmed the reality of something that had been uh, practiced and accepted throughout the uh, either the Old Testament or the uh, New Testament church. So they were simply validating something that was already happening rather than uh, in Imposing a standard uh, upon the church. Now, other other religions have their uh, <clears throat> their religious books, and that they make certain claims. But the question should always be: Can their uh, what's the validation for those claims? Can that they be documented? Can they be validated historically or archaeologically? And the unique claim of the Bible for both the Jews of the Old Testament as well as Christians in the New Testament, is that this is the very word of God. It's the actual word of God. God is the one who is the source of this information, not man. It's not man writing about his experiences with God. It is God inspiring or breathing out his word uh, through these writers of Scripture. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> you will hear people sometimes say that the Old Testament canon was determined by uh, a group of uh, Pharisees, religious leaders, rabbis, who met uh, at a town in <clears throat> in Israel up in the Galilee called Yomnia in a d ninety and that that 's where the old testament canon was was um, was established. but the facts are really quite different they 're simply a, what happened at the Council of yomnia is this is after twenty years after the uh, defeat of uh, uh, of of the conquest of Jerusalem and the destruction of the of the temple. And what happens at Jomnia is the Pharisees and the rabbis come together in order to reestablish, redefine the standards for a non-temple Judaism. Now that they are being um, continued, the, 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 the nation of Judah, the province has been destroyed and the temple's destroyed, they come together in order to set the standards for what how things will be conducted in light of the fact that there is no longer a temple. So they are simply affirming the same books that have already been the standard in, uh, in the Old Testament for at least a century and a half, maybe uh, two centuries or more. Uh, the <clears throat> New Testament, which was all written before approximately 95 uh, A.D. clearly recognizes the existence of an already, uh, already existing, uh, Old Testament canon. Paul refers to this in a well-known passage, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Frequently we'll quote or focus on verse 16 and, verses 16 and 17 which states that all scripture is inspired or breathed out by God, but the previous verse in which uh, Paul is talking directly to Timothy, and he says that from childhood you, that is you, Timothy, have known the sacred writings. Well, when Timothy was a child, that was prior to uh, any of the New Testament being written, so that the only sacred writings that Paul could be alluding to here would be the Old Testament, and his mother and grandmother brought him up on the teachings of the Old Testament. So here Paul refers to those as sacred writings. The word that is translated sacred is the same root for holy, and it means a writing that is set apart. It is a distinct or unique writing. And so by using that terminology, he sets apart the Old Testament as having a Uh, unique claim to being uh, revelation from God. And then when, of course, when he states all scripture in verse 16, he's referring back to those sacred writings that he spoke of in verse 15. And so he primarily has in mind Old Testament Scripture, not New Testament Scripture. When Paul writes uh, Second Timothy, probably two-thirds, maybe a little more of the New Testament had been written, so that certainly would be included within his understanding of all Scripture. But when he writes this, in light of the context, the primary focus is on Old Testament scripture, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate or equipped for every good work. Now the other verse that we go to that emphasizes the inspiration of the Old Testament, the uniqueness of the Old Testament inspiration is Second Peter chapter one verses twenty and twenty one. And here Peter recognizes the uh, uniqueness of Old Testament uh, inspiration and that what's written by the prophets is distinct from any other things, any of the other things that are written. He says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So he is emphasizing the fact that what they wrote is a result of this movement by God the Holy Spirit. It wasn't something generated uh, from their own will. It wasn't their own opinions that they're writing. It's not something that they came up with out of their own experience or their own background, but that what they wrote had its source in God the Holy Spirit. And what they wrote wasn't a matter of their own thinking. That's what he means when he says it's not no prophecy of Scripture. is a matter of one's own interpretation. So we have a clear statement here in both of these New Testament passages that they understood that there was a set group of books called Scripture or sacred writings from the Old Testament. So they both assumed that there is a distinct Old Testament canon in existence at the time that they wrote. And this is roughly in the period of uh, the decade of the 60s uh, in the first century, long before the Council of, of uh, Jomnia. Now, the Old Testament itself recognizes in itself, in its own writings, that some books are authoritative and other books were not authoritative. And you have various passages such as... Uh, for example, Exodus 24, 4, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So he writes down all of God's word. And then this gets, continues to be affirmed down through subsequent writings. Joshua wrote in Joshua eight thirty-one as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the children of Israel as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. So Joshua affirms not only Mosaic authorship, but he is also confirming the fact that Moses wrote down what God had instructed him uh, to write down. Uh, And then Joshua continued to uh, pass this on, and he makes a copy of the law of moses joshua eight twenty two he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. This uh, shows how the text is is transmitted, and then afterward he Uh, read this, all the words of the law, to all of the tribes of Israel gathered before him, uh, written in the book of the, everything that written in the book of the law. Now the book of the law, the term, the Hebrew word for law is the Torah. And it can mean law, it can mean instruction or teaching and it covers the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, sometimes you may think I get a little long-winded if I talk for an hour, hour and 15 minutes or so, but I think you'd really think I was long-winded if I stood up here and read the entire Torah from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy. We would be here for much of the afternoon, and I would suspect that somebody would fall asleep. Now, in the Old Testament, when Nehemiah, Uh, had brought the people back together and he's there, he's come back to, uh, Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls. When they completed the walls, all of the people stood while he read the law of Moses. Now just think about that. In terms of how well your knees would hold up. So we have nice cushioned chairs, we have air conditioning, and you can sit, and we don't, I don't talk for five or six hours, so we really have it good. So we shouldn't be complaining about how long Bible class can be at sometimes. So, <clears throat> but here we see the transmission of the text and that subsequent generations Emphasize the importance of it and the preservation of it, so that Deuteronomy 31:26 states that a copy of what Moses wrote was put beside the Ark of the Covenant and kept there in the the Tabernacle and later in the Temple, so that there would be a uh, a record of that original revelation given to Moses that would be the standard against which all copies would be would be uh, uh qualified uh down through the centuries later on you have other writers of of the old testament who also affirm um that what they are writing is uh from the lord in first samuel samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the lord and so samuel probably wrote parts of first samuel he didn't live through, he dies uh, around chapter uh, 22 or 23, somewhere in there. He doesn't live to the end of the book of Samuel. And so there were others who wrote those books, but they're simply named for him because he's the primary character at the beginning of Samuel. He may have had a hand in the final uh, writing, the final uh, form of the book of Judges. Uh, there were other prophets who came along who contributed to those uh those books because they cover several generations and then uh th- that's when they reach and then under the supervision of another prophet uh they would reach their final form uh in Daniel recognized that the book of Jeremiah was unique and inspired by God uh <clears throat> when he's uh, reading the book of Jeremiah as referred to in Daniel nine two, He said that uh, Daniel understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. And so he relies exclusively upon what uh, Jeremiah said in terms of the 70 years of the captivity. Nehemiah, after the exile, also affirms the inspiration of Moses that... <clears throat> God revealed this to Moses, and they were the precepts, statutes, and laws were written by the hand of Moses, uh, the servant of God. But you also have in the Old Testament books that are written, that are referred to, that are quoted, that are non-inspired sources. This shows their historiography. They did research. There were other record records that were kept during that time. That were not inspired, but they were accurate to a degree, just as we have many records that are accurate, and they are quoted by uh, the writers of Scripture. Doesn't mean that uh, they're saying that those other books are inspired. It's just simply saying that they had accurate records that were uh, quoted accurately in the Scripture. For example, in Joshua ten thirteen, it references the book of <clears throat> the book of Jasher which we do not have, but is uh, referred to there in terms of it, of the uh, historical uh, documentation. Also, there was another book called the Book of the Wars of the Lord uh, mentioned in Deuteronomy, or excuse me, in Numbers twenty-one, fourteen. Also, we know that uh, the Old Testament uh, often referred to itself or to parts of itself as Moses and the prophets or the law, the Torah, uh, the prophets, and the writings, and this is the way the Old Testament's divided. Now, to understand how we got the Old Testament, why we know that these uh, 39 books are the 39 books that were uh, established and accepted by uh, the Jewish authorities uh, before Christ, we need to understand a little something about how the uh, Bible is organized. The English Old Testament has... um, 39 books, the way it's divided up. We divide them in terms of uh, five categories, the law, which would be the Pentateuch, which means uh, <clears throat> five in a case, basically, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We follow that in an English Bible by what we refer to as historical books, now, these are usually referred to in the Hebrew Bible as the early prophets. Uh, some of these by the early prophets, some later prophets or writings. But the historical books in terms of the English organization begins with Joshua and goes through Esther. So if you begin reading in Genesis and read all the way through Esther, you have covered the historical part of the Old Testament. Now, the rest of the books in the Old Testament take place within that framework. Okay, so the books like uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, those fit within the framework, uh, the historical framework of Genesis to Esther, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the the prophets. They also fit within that framework. So the way the uh, the English Bibles laid out, Genesis to Esther gives you the chronological flow from the beginning of creation uh, up through the exile and the return from the exile, and then uh, other types of writings come in that formed a part of that historical flow. So you have uh, Joshua through Esther uh, represents that historical flow, and then the uh, poetry books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. Those are primarily poetry, also referred to sometimes as, as wisdom literature. Then we have the major prophets uh, in the English Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They're called major because they're longer books. Uh, Daniel, though, is never holds the office of prophet. Every now and then somebody will ask me the question, well, how do you distinguish between the office of prophet and someone who had the gift of prophecy? And that is a deduction based on how they're referred to in the Scripture. For example, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Nathan, Gad, uh, others are referred to as seers or prophets, the prophet of the Lord, the man of God, things of that nature. Elijah was called the man of God, called a prophet. But Daniel and David and a few others are not called prophets But they, when in their writings, they do have, uh, they do have prophecy. So they have the gift of prophecy, foretelling the future, but they do not have the office or the role within the theocracy of Israel of being a prophet. So you have the major prophets and then what we refer to as the minor prophets simply because they are smaller, shorter, uh, shorter books. That makes up our organization uh in the in the English Bible. Now, we have the same books that are in the Hebrew canon. The <clears throat> Hebrew canon simply divides these books up a little differently. They have three divisions, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim according to the Hebrew words, and often uh Jewish people will simply refer to the Torah, which is the first 5 books of Moses if they're talking about what we call the old testament they'll refer to, to the tanakh now the consonants in the word tanakh p n k come from the first letters of these three words torah neviim for prophets and ketuvim for the writing, so they will refer to the Hebrew Bible, the uh, what ha- which has either 20 or 22 books, depending on how it's divided up. Sometimes it's the same as as the what we have. It's just that they they combine books a little differently. So the Torah, Neviim, and Ketuvim refers to the Tanakh. The Torah is the same as what we have in the English Bible: the Law, Genesis through Deuteronomy the neviim is divided up into two sections the uh, early prophets and the latter prophets the early prophets are Joshua Judges Samuel and Kings notice they don't divide Samuel into first and second or Kings into first and second so they just they're, they're viewed at, each is viewed as one book that's why they have a smaller number of books they just combine some books together that we separate the latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. The Twelve are considered one book in the Hebrew canon. So that again accounts for why we have more uh, books than uh, than you find in the Hebrew Bible. And then you have the Writings. And these are books that are neither uh, Torah nor uh, written by the prophets. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, sometimes they're combined, sometimes they're separate. Esther and Chronicles. So Chronicles is viewed as one book, not two, first not first and second Chronicles. So that's the Hebrew canon. Notice the order and the arrangement. In an English Bible, the first book in the Old Testament is Genesis, and the last book is Malachi. But in a Hebrew Bible, the first book is Genesis, and the last book is Chronicles. Now, that's going to be important for something we're going to look at uh, in just a minute, Because you have to understand that arrangement if we're going to be able to accurately answer the question, when was the Old Testament canon, uh, really, uh, solidified and when was it, um, uh, when was it resolved? So when we look at the question of how did the, um, uh, Old Testament canon come along, we have to recognize that, that in the Hebrew Bible they had the same books that we do even though they arranged them differently. Now, if you look at some English Bibles, specifically uh, Roman Catholic Bibles or some Eastern, various Eastern Orthodox Bibles, although the Syriac Church and a couple of other smaller groups in, within Eastern Orthodoxy have a different set of books in their Bible. For example, if you pick up an English translation, the Dewey rheims translation, which is a Catholic Roman Catholic translation, or the, um, or if you pick up a Jerusalem Bible, which was a more modern translation of the of the Roman Catholic collection, you will find that they have some books in the Old Testament that you never heard of before, and these are referred to as the Apocrypha, and the Apocrypha is a term that means. Uh, hidden, obscure, or spurious. That means they're not uh, authenticated uh, books. And so this is one of the important differences. The uh, Apocrypha includes books such as Tobit, Judith. Uh, there's uh, six chapters added to the book of Esther. There's the Wisdom of Solomon, uh, Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus, also known as Bensarach. Uh, the book of Baruch, who Baruch was the name of Jeremiah's scribe. The letter of Jeremiah, the prayer of Azariah, or the song of the three young men. Azariah was uh, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael were the original Hebrew names of, of uh, <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so this is attributed to them. The book of Susanna. Uh, Bell and the Dragon, uh, Bell is short for Belteshazzar, if you remember. That was the, uh, Babylonian name given to a uh, Daniel. And so Bell and the Dragon is an addition to, uh, the book of Daniel. And then 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Now, 1st and 2nd Maccabees is, is historically, uh, it's a good book to read historically because it covers the intertestamental period to some degree. It's not scripture, but it is, um, it is uh, good information in terms of understanding what goes on in the period between uh, between the testaments now at the end of the fourth century, so we 're talking about the the shift from three hundred ninety nine to four hundred at the end of the fourth century, uh, Pope Damasus commissioned Jerome, who was one of the most uh, learned scholars of that time period, to translate the scriptures into the common vernacular of the people, which at that time was Latin, especially in the western part of the Roman, Roman Empire. So Jerome, uh, sort of sequestered himself, uh, at Bethlehem at the location of the Church of the Nativity, which is where it is believed that, that Jesus was born. And some of us who have been there to, uh, uh, to Bethlehem have been there to the Church of the Nativity, and down below they have a uh, a place uh, where they show you the room where uh, where Jerome worked and when he translated the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament into uh, into uh, uh, Latin and then he um, also translated the Apocrypha, but he says in his preface to his translation he says anything outside of these that is the 39 books of the old testament must be placed within the apocrypha but he included that in the vulgate because these books he said were were worthy to be read for the information they had but they weren't on the same scale of inspiration or authority as the other 39. The problem was once you take those books and you stick them within the covers of your, of your Bible, it wasn't long before people reading it didn't read. How many of you all have ever read the preface to your Bible? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but most of you probably never read that, just like most people then never read what he wrote in the preface. And so uh, they just figured those other books were just as authoritative as the other 39, and it wasn't long before they began to be accepted as having the same uh, value and the same authority as the other 39 books in the Old Testament. Uh, their acceptance as part of the Old Testament canon did not come until um, the Council of Trent in the middle 16th century. In the 1540s uh, to 1550s, the Council of Trent meant as a reaction to the uh, Protestant Reformation, and the Roman Catholic Church then accepted um, accepted these books as part of the Bible. However, the uh, no Jewish authority ever accepted that as part of the, um, as part of the Old Testament canon. That's where the Apocrypha, Apocrypha belongs. It's not part of the New Testament. It's part of the Old Testament. And as I said, no Jewish authority ever accepted it. Now, there are four basic problems with, with the Apocrypha and why we do not accept it as part of the Word of God. First of all, they were written predominantly in Greek. Uh, exceptions are Tobit, Judith, Ecclesiasticus, part of Baruch, and 1st uh, Maccabees are written in Hebrew or Aramaic, but the rest are all written in Greek, so they are written much later than the rest of the Old Testament. Second reason we reject them is they're written late after we know that the Old Testament canon was closed. We have statements made in uh, ancient uh Jewish literature that indicates that the, the set number of books in the Old Testament was already established by uh, the second century B.C., before some of these books were even uh, written. We also n- see that in these books there are numerous historical, geographical, and uh, <coughs> chronological inaccuracies. Uh, for example, in Tobit, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it states that the division of the kingdom under Jeroboam I, uh, which occurred in 931 B.C. after the uh, uh, death of Solomon, occurred when T- Tobit was a young man. But Tobit was a, a young Israelite captive living in Ni- Nineveh under Shalmaneser in the late 8th century or late 700, so 200 years later. So he would not have been alive 200 years earlier at the time of the division uh, of the kingdom uh, in Judith, one uh, one, it declares that Nebuchadnezzar reigned over the Assyrians at Nineveh at, at the time that our uh, reigned over the Medes in Ekbatana. But he, Nebuchadnezzar never did reign over the Assyrians, uh, at Nineveh. He's the second king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire and he reigned only at Babylon. So there are a number of errors like that that indicate that it's not from, uh, not from God. And then there are false doctrines. They have this is where you find your source for prayers and offerings for the dead uh giving money as penance to make atonement for sin uh the pr- doctrine of the preexistence of souls uh that the souls emanate from god things like that come out of these particular books and so they weren't uh, they were not accepted uh by jewish authorities and that canon had already been closed now the way we can attest to the uh, books in the Old Testament is from Jewish history. The Jewish community consistently recognized 22 or 24 books. It depends on how they divided them, uh, but it's the same basic books It just depended on dividing them. So in, in Babylon, remember after the exile, there's three basic Uh, Jewish communities. There's the one in Babylon, one in Jerusalem, and one in Alexandria in North Egypt. In the Babylonian Talmud, uh, according to the Baba Bathra, they they list list the same books as authoritative, uh, the same 22 books that we have today. The Talmud is finally consolidated about 200 uh, AD. And that... um, but even though it is not, uh, it's not written any later than AD 200, it does preserve Jewish tradition that extends back to at least 100 BC and maybe, uh, maybe even earlier. So it's, it's a compilation and its final form is reached by AD 200. So that represents the Babylonian community. Then you have the Palestinian community that's in in Jerusalem, and this is represented by Josephus. And Josephus, in his writings contra uh, Appian, uh, mentions that uh, we do not have an innumerable multitude of books among us that contradict or disagree with each other, but only 22 books which contain the records of all the past times which are justly believed to be, be divine. And then he goes and he lists them. So Josephus, representing the tradition in, uh, in, in Judah, represents those same 22 books. And then Philo, who is an Alexandrian Jew, living around, uh, AD 40, uh, recognizes the same set of books, the same 22 books. Now this is all basically are contemporaneous with the time, uh, the time of Christ so we see from those uh, evidences that those same books are uh, are listed now in the uh <clears throat> in the diaspora of the Jews as they're scattered throughout the uh, old Roman empire they all seem to recognize these same same books then when you get into the new testament let me see new testament we get into uh, passages such as Luke 24:44, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he said to them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. Sometimes the writings were referred to as the Psalms because that was the largest book and the first book mentioned. And so he recognizes the same division that we know was present in the uh, in the Hebrew canon at that time. In Matthew 23:35, he states that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Now, when did Abel occur? Right at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 4. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Now, who is he? He is a prophet who is killed at the end or near the end of 2nd Chronicles. Now, remember when I pointed out that the Hebrew canon begins with Genesis and ends with Second Chronicles. So what Jesus is qu- stating there is that from the f- killing of Abel to the last part of the Old Testament, the killing of Ze- this prophet Zechariah, in other words, he's talking about from the beginning, from the first killed to the last killed. And so this is a recognition that at the time, of, uh, time of Christ, the Hebrew canon was already set, and the first book was Genesis, the last book is Second, Second Chronicles. So it's an indication that there, they were using the same book. Not only that, but we know from, uh, from the Septuagint, which was translated as early as probably before 200, uh, BC, that it was the same, uh, same, uh, 22 to 24 books that we have in our present, present canon further we know that the new testament writers never quote from any of the disputed books they never quote from from the apocrypha now jude quotes from the book of enoch but book of enoch was never part of the apocrypha it was never under consideration to be in the old testament so it's just again it's just another source that's uh, quoted by uh quoted by uh jude so we know that that the canon is closed by probably at the latest 200, uh, 200 BC, and that this is reflected by the things that are stated in the first century at the time of Christ. But now the question is, how do we know that what we have was is accurately preserved? I mean, when, when uh, we look at our Bible. The Bible that you use is uh the Old Testament Bible is based on what's called the Masoretic text. And the Maso- the oldest copy of the Masoretic text that we have dates to about the 9th century uh, AD. And up until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, then we did not have anything uh any older than that. And so all of a sudden, then we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which actually date to about a thousand years before that. And they, what they did was confirm the accuracy of of uh, what we had. Uh, Weston Fields, who is the director of the <coughs> Dead Sea Scroll Project in uh, in Jerusalem states that with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we are brought back almost within a generation of the writing of the last book of the Bible. If the oldest scroll is conservatively dated at 250 B.C., and some would date the oldest ones as early as 300 B.C., there's probably only 25 years or less between the time the last book of the Old Testament was written and our earliest copies of the Hebrew Old Testament. This gives us a great deal more confidence about the text and the way it was passed along because we are able to compare what has been passed to us, which are much later copies, but uh present uh but present a very early text with what we we have in the scrolls have fra- however fragmentary uh they may be and so what he is saying is that as we compare these uh documents that we have discovered at Qumran in the Dead Sea scrolls that when we compare them to the masoretic text there are very few differences now let me put this slide up here because this will give you a little bit of a of a uh, timeline to compare uh, and contrast these these events. Uh, Jesus is crucified in approximately A.D. 33. The Masoretic Text is dated to about 1,000 A.D., so it's a 1,000 years after the death of Christ. The Dead Sea Scrolls are dated from conservatively 250 B.C. to A.D. 100, and then they're discovered in 1948. So the New Testament canon then is written here in this short period of time from about uh, 45 until about 95 uh, BC. Now the Old Testament canon itself is formed and written from approximately 1400 BC to about 350 BC. So that gives us a, a time frame to see how close the Dead Sea Scrolls were to the, uh, to the final writings of the Old Testament. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were allegedly discovered here. This is a shot of the fourth cave at Qumran, Uh, were allegedly discovered in these caves uh, located in the desert uh, down by the Dead Sea. You can see here a copy of uh, a photograph of one of the scrolls, and you see that there's various uh, parts missing, but you can uh, they're able to well, reconstruct it, of course, based on what they, what they do have written, and then they're able to compare that with uh, the, the text of the of the, Masoretic, uh, the Masoretic text. And there's a shot from inside of uh, Cave 4. When um, Miller Burroughs, who was one of the directors of the original project on the Dead Sea Scrolls back in the 1950s, uh, wrote his book, Light on the Dead Sea Scrolls, he looked at the. He compared the uh, what's referred to as the Saint Mark scroll of Isaiah with the with the I, Isaiah text of the, of the Masoretic text. And although there were about 200 differences, most of them had to do with spelling or writing changes that had taken place over the over the centuries. But he said that um, um, that there were only about seven different differences that he would incorporate. Uh, within, the, um, within the text of Isaiah, uh, or actually 13 that he accepted as substantive. And he accepted those, and they became part of, I think, the uh, Revised Standard Version. He was one of the chief editors of the Revised Standard Version. But five years later, after he had more time to study it, uh, he wrote that uh, he believed that they had made a mistake in accepting any of those changes. That in fact the the uh, the text of the Masoretic text was far superior to that which they had found uh, at the Dead Sea. So, what we have here is a tremendous confirmation that the bible didn 't change that that the Jewish community had a way of uh, guaranteeing and protecting the text. They counted every letter they counted every word on every section, so if they would write copy down on a scroll, they knew what would be at the top, the first word, the last word, the middle word, the first word of every sense they memorized all of this, and if there was the least deviation, then that Uh, scroll would be completely destroyed and burned so that they would make sure that they had an accurate preservation of the text. So when we come to the question that I ask is, can we trust the Hebrew Old Testament, the answer is a resounding yes. It was revealed by God to the writers of the Old Testament, to Moses, to Joshua, to Samuel, to David, to Daniel, Jeremiah. They wrote down that which God revealed to them, and what was written down was carefully preserved and protected. God overseeing uh, that process down through the ages so that there is no doubt that what we have as the uh, Hebrew text underlying our Old Testament translation Is an accurate copy of what was originally given by God. So the question is, did God really say? Yes, He did. This is the Word of God, and anything else is not the Word of God. Therefore, we can rely upon it completely and totally. Now, next week, I'm going to look at the New Testament. And the story of the New Testament and how we got the New Testament. And that is also a fascinating story with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to look at these things this morning, to show that there is clear evidence within history to show how you have preserved and protected your word, your revelation down through the ages, that even though this word is was written by over uh, 30 different authors in the Old Testament, that these authors uh, wrote what you revealed to them and that what they wrote was accurately preserved down through the centuries so that we can trust it, we can rely upon it. This is your word to us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their uh, salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. It is Jesus that the Old Testament passages, the Old Testament scriptures refer. Through many prophecies, through many types, through many shadows, through many many different images that are given, uh, they all predict something about the role of the Messiah and the redemption that would be uh, provided by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we pray that if anyone here is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain by putting their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with what we studied, confirm our faith in your word and the truthfulness of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.